Welcome to the Idea Pod, a podcast dedicated to exploring and interrogating professional biomedical and applied ethics here at the University of Leeds. For any new listeners, I am Gabby, a postgraduate researcher at the Idea Center and your host today. Accompanying me in this episode is David Molyneux, medical doctor, medical ethics tutor, and current postgraduate researcher at the University of Leeds. Welcome, David. Thanks, Gabby. So I'm excited because today we're going to discuss a very influential thought experiment called the trolley problem, made famous by Philippa Food back in 1967 and then revised by Judith Thompson 10 years later. Just in case some of you listening are not familiarized with the trolley problem, I'll just uh, set up a, a brief example. So the original trolley problem puts you as the driver of a trolley that is out of control. Let's assume the brakes have failed. You see that ahead of you, there are five people tied to the main track. However, looking at the side track, you see that there is only one person tied there. So you cannot stop the trolley. However, you can steer it and change lanes. What do you choose? Do you kill one or you save five? So there are some variations to this problem that, has, that are quite famous. So I think some of them might give us an insightful look at issues related to medical ethics and things related to the pandemic that we're going to go into. So David, would you mind telling us about these variations? Absolutely. And thanks for the introduction, Gabby. So I think the strength of these trolley cases really come when you use them to make comparisons with other cases, both trolley cases and non-trolley cases. Mm -hmm. In the original trolley problem, the one that you've just described, most people would say, yes, it is permissible to switch the trolley onto the sidetrack, even though you'll still be harming one person. Philippa Foote, uh, an Oxford philosopher, a very famous Oxford philosopher, who invented this problem back in 1967, uh, certainly agreed with this, as do most individuals who take place in surveys or indeed, uh, more recently, virtual reality experiments. And when asked why, most people would say, very commonsensical, uh, that it's something to do with minimising the number of people who die. So if you switch the trolley, one dies instead of five, and that makes good common sense. Right. So then move on a little bit. Judith Jarvis Thompson, an American philosopher from Princeton, she introduces a fascinating additional modification to the case. Imagine, says uh, Judith Thompson, that you don't actually have any facility for switching tracks, but you can push a large man, it's a fat man in the original text, but large man now, and he's helpfully standing on a bridge over the trolley track. You can push him down onto the track below. The large man will obviously die, but his body on the track will stop the trolley killing the five people who are tied to the main track. Now, in one sense, the purely numerical sense, this is exactly the same response that result 
as in the case which involves switching tracks. One person dies or five persons die. So you might think that people when asked would also say it was permissible to push the large man onto the track, just as they did when asked about switching tracks. But they don't. <laughs> Most people would not, in fact, want to push the large man onto the track. Some people think it's morally abhorrent. And that's really interesting. And there needs to be some explanation for this that doesn't just rely on numbers, because right. the numbers are exactly the same in both scenarios. Mm -hmm. So moving on a little bit away from trolleys, Thompson also has a very famous thought experiment, which he called the transplant case. This is very famous and was made even more famous by John Harris's article called the transplant lottery, which came out later. Imagine, says Thompson, there's a super clever surgeon who is looking after five patients who are all dying from organ failure. Patient one has heart failure. Patient two has got liver failure. Patients three and four have kidney failure. Patient five has lung failure. Hard to look after such people and they're very ill and they're about to die. But also in the hospital is a completely well man who has attended for a, a minor procedure which involves a short anaesthetic. Now, here's the key thing. Whilst the well man is asleep, the surgeon harvests the organs from the well man and saves the lives of the five dying patients. And we have to assume here that the transplants take OK and there's no no problem with doing this sort of thing. The well man dies. And the question then is, did the surgeon do the right thing? And most people, when asked, as did Judith Thompson, say categorically no. And the thought of doing that feels morally repugnant. And again, the question is why? Unlike in the fat man, the large man case, five people have been saved and only one dies. Exactly the same numbers as in the original trolley case. How then can we explain the different intuitions? It's not just about numbers. It must be something else. I think it's extremely interesting to see how these cases can show the diversity of intuitions that we have, depending not only on how people are involved, either directly or indirectly, but also I think there are cultural influences. Uh, I remember a couple of years back, for example, the media MIT lab was curious to get some information about these intuitions and how they worked. Uh, the setting was a bit different, so we had self-driving cars in the examples that they tested, but the results show a variety of intuitions of how an ethical autonomous vehicle in this case should behave or how it should make decisions. So they set up the moral machine experiment and millions of people from over 200 countries answered this experiment. And there were three clear preferences which might show us either, you know, moral intuitions happening there, but also cultural backgrounds that might be affecting these intuitions. So the top three were sparing human lives over animals, sparing many over few, and preserving young people over the elderly. So uh, one of the things that they uh, were able to 
record in the data that they had was that older people are not so easily unconsidered by Eastern countries where they have the, this culture based on respecting the elders. So there is a tendency for clusters, if you want to call it that. So based on common worldviews that might put together cultural, political, religious and um, ethical views together. So I think exploring these intuitions, it is always helpful for us to theorize about them in more depth. Uh, but talking about the trolley problem, I think, is going to take us and um, to talk and introduce the doctrine of double effect. So before jumping into our coronavirus discussion about, you know, this doctrine of double effect, I think it will be helpful for us to explain what this doctrine is. What is it, David? Right. Well, the doctrine of double effect is a is a well-known sort of theory or idea. And it's the concept that it's permissible to cause harm as a side effect when you're aiming for a good outcome. The old word for side effect was double effect. That's why it's called the doctrine of double effect. Now, that's true, even though it would not be permissible to cause the same harm as a means of producing the same good outcome. So it draws a distinction between harm caused as a side effect and harm caused as a means and between harm caused as a side effect and harm caused as an intention. And intuitively, that's quite an attractive idea. Historically, the doctrine seems to date to St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, the medieval philosopher and theologian. Aquinas was really reacting to um, some writing produced by St. Augustine um, about the impermissibility of doing any kind of harm. Augustine was very keen on that. So Aquinas introduced the doctrine uh, really to do with self-defense and killing in a just war. And it's perhaps best known these days as part of the justification for the use of strong opiates in end of life care. So to take that medical example, which is well known, it's permissible to use high dose opiates in palliative care even though it might shorten the life of the patient, provided that the outcome is good and any shortening of life is a side effect rather than an intention. So that's OK, but the doctor could not, at least in the UK, where euthanasia is against the law, use high dose opiates as a means to end the life of a patient, even if the doctor was motivated by the goal of relieving the patient's pain. So there's the difference, intention versus side effect. Several high profile medical cases over the years, starting in the 60s with the Bodkin Adams case, have relied successfully on the doctrine of double effect as an effective defense. Another well-known application is the difference between terror bombing of civilians to weaken their resolve and strategic bombing of military sites where it is known that civilians are highly likely to be killed. The first involves a means and intention and is forbidden. We can't do terror bombing. But the second is permissible as long as the side effect has the good aim of ending the war. So again, a nice example of the difference between intention and side effect. I just want to make a sort of important theoretical point um, before we move on. 
-hmm. And that's that the doctrine of double effect contains a proportionality clause. clause. Not any harm, and not any strategy is permissible. So it would not, for example, be permissible to use high dose opiates to relieve somebody's chronic back pain, even though the harm produced death was an unintended side effect of the pain relief. That just wouldn't be defensible ethically or legally. Right. I think I think there is something here and I would like to highlight um, the role of intention, because I think it's quite easy for uh, people that first hear about this um, doctrine of double effect to follow this train of thought. They think, well, if I did not intend to do that harm, then I am not blameworthy. Right. But to illustrate this distinction, uh, I think it's worth considering this. So sacrificing one's life versus committing suicide are completely different things. So if a mother throws herself in front of, let's say, her baby to protect her from a car, it is reacting. And the, the, the time frame for questioning or thinking about optional consequences like her own death are not realistic. There is no possibility for that. But taking her life, if you may, on purpose, and for the sake of ending her life, allows her to foresee consequences. So there is something to distinguish here, I think. Um, It is not just about intentionality. uh, It is also about our capacity to foresee that potential harm, right? So even when being capable of foreseeing something happening, like in the trolley case, knowing that someone or a group will necessarily die. But here, once again, we also have a misinterpretation, I think, if anyone claims that the doctrine of double effect implies the permissibility of any harmful effects, if they are side effects. And I want to be like, make this really clear. There must be, like you said, very clearly a proportionality condition so i think that that's uh sort of something that we must be really careful with absolutely gabby proportionality is really important and as you say it's often forgotten yeah so going back to trolleys our listeners might be wondering what on earth um the doctrine of double effect has to do with with (laughs) yes Um, and indeed people being pushed off bridges. Well, the doctrine of double effect, I think, provides a neat explanation of the contrasting intuition in the two types of trolley case that we talked about earlier in this podcast. Both cases involve a numerical gain in lives. One dies instead of five dying. Indeed, it's important to say, really going back to proportionality, if there was no gain in life saved, then there wouldn't actually be a justification to do anything. And this relates very clearly to what Gabby said earlier about proportionality. Now, in the switch case, remember the first case, there is no intention at all to kill the man on the sidetrack, though if asked afterwards, you might well foresee that the man on the sidetrack would die. But there's no intention there. If perchance the man wasn't killed, maybe the trolley ran out of momentum before it got to him or he was able to get out of the way, then the driver would be absolutely delighted. But in the large man on the bridge case, 
This isn't true. The man is being used as a means to stop the trolley. And there is a clear intention that he dies. Unless he dies, the trolley will not stop. So the doctrine of double effect explains nicely our different beliefs in the two cases and our different conclusions. The switch case is morally permissible because there is no intention. The large man on the bridge case is morally impermissible because there is intention. In fact, the man pushed off the bridge has to die in order to achieve the good aim of stopping the trolley hitting the five people. And it's the same sort of argument too, the same sort of intuition as we see in the transplant case. The well man, the man who goes into hospital thinking he's just going to have a minor minor procedure done, um, is being used as a means to save the other five. His death is necessary. There is a need. Sometimes that phrase need is used in the literature for the surgeon's plan to work. His death isn't foreseen at all. It's actually an intention. The surgeon needs the well man to lose his organs and without the organs, it's impossible to live. Having clarified that, um, I think it would, we're ready to go into the real trolley problems, as we have called in this pandemic. So we're going to go into three cases that uh, reflect some of the conflicts that uh, people, uh, especially healthcare workers, have faced uh, in the middle of this pandemic. So first, we're going to Look at this case. I've called it uh, a health professional's choice. So Connie Chow has a um, paper published um, a month ago where she questions how long should we continue to delay care to ensure we are doing what is best for all of our patients? So her take on the trolley problem considers that healthcare systems are being forced to reduce and sometimes even eliminate their surgical procedures, aiming to minimize any potential exposure to the virus for all patients and workers. So the balance between COVID-19 patients and those awaiting other types of care presents a scenario in which handling the uncertainties of this pandemic makes it harder to instinctively know the meaning of what constitutes appropriate care. So. Whilst handling new information that keeps on coming and existent incomplete data, here is how she presents the trolley problem. As the train moves forward, the number of people on both the main and side tracks increases, but the actual number at each track is unknown. The mortality and morbidity associated with being in the way of the trolley is also unknown. Some may survive only to be injured. Others may survive with no sign of injury at all. There are groups of people demanding that it is a violation of their rights to not be positioned on the main track. They are eventually on the main track and their occupation of resources puts additional people on the side track. The governing body supplying funding for the trolley reopens ticket sales for additional passengers who find themselves on the main track in the path of the trolley. 
Investing in the trolley also lengthens the tracks, increasing the amount of time before the trolley hits and this, the number of people on either track. The tracks do not target isolated groups of people. It's not like in the um, thought experiments that we went through. Instead, there is an infinite number of options that will result in morbidity and mortality in both groups to varying degrees. The subsequent groups of people on main and side tracks, that means second or possible third waves of the virus, are dictated by our current decisions with an impact that can be anticipated but not predictable. So once again, how long will our patients wait at home until their, for example, elective surgeries or treatments become urgent? What elements are, st are at stake here? What, what can you tell us about this case, um, David, you as a philosopher, but also a medical doctor? Thanks, Gabby. So in this paper, Connie Shell's really making a direct comparison between the trolley problem, the very problem we've just been discussing, and the situation in hospitals during the COVID crisis. So I guess we need to be crystal clear about the analogies that Shao has in mind. The patients who are at risk of dying from normal disease, things like cancer, heart disease, trauma, etc., are the patients on the main track. They are under threat from these patients, just as the five trapped individuals are under threat from the runaway trolley. On the side track are patients under threat from COVID. Should the trolley, as shall, be switched from the main track, normal disease, to the side track, COVID? What a hard question. Yeah. The first thing to be clear about is the numbers involved. The trolley cases, and for that matter, the transplant case, gets its moral purchase, its moral impetus, from the fact that there is the opportunity to save lives. But in the COVID crisis, we don't really know the numbers on both tracks. Because of the difficulties with reporting cause of death, we may never actually possess this information. Right, so basically the uncertainty about any real-time data in a way prevents us from being able to really balance the potential consequences. And in this case, the number of people on the tracks is just simply unknowable. Absolutely. And it's actually a bit harder than that still. Um, to push the analogy a little bit, some patients will be on both the main track and the side track. Yeah. They may die, and we don't know this, from both COVID or some other disease. And as Shao rightly says, we don't really know how dangerous it is to be on the main track and how dangerous it is to be on the side track. So decisions about switching tracks are really, really difficult. Alarmingly, the numbers on both tracks are changing all the times. And sometimes individuals on the side track cause more people on the main track to join them on the side track. So I would say here that decision making is mind bogglingly difficult. It really is. What can we take away from the trolley problem and the doctrine of double effect? Perhaps this, because none of the deaths are intended and none of the deaths are a means to save others, 
than choosing one group over another group. It's permissible if the numbers are right. So this is a trolley switch case rather than a large man on the bridge case. But this puts enormous moral pressure on a realistic understanding of the numbers. And I'm not sure that we can have total confidence now, or maybe even ever, that we have done our calculations correctly. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the factors that uh, comes into applied ethics um, and the, at the end of the day. We have so many layers of complexity and overlapping ethical distinctions that it's quite hard to know what the right answer is. Um, however, I think in this case, it's just it comes down uh, to diligence and the ability to reconsider decisions on the go. And I think this is very important because sometimes um, in the pressure of, you know, decision making uh, being very swift, we forget that we need to take a step back and maybe reconsider what we have been doing. So what might be the best possible solution when uncertainty abounds is actually just taking the time to revise constantly what we're doing and why. So for case two, uh, we're going to look directly into the double effect. So David, would you like to introduce us into herd immunity? Uh, yes, I will, Gabby. Um, perhaps before I start that, if I could add that transparency is really important too. Yes. In order to make good decisions, people need to know all the information. And it's very worrying when bits of that information is kept away from either the population or the scientists who are working on these decisions. Yeah, in that case, I think it also relates to not just the ethical decisions made by the doctors in this case uh, individually, but it also has to do with the type of policy that is taking as uh, an institution or more broadly as uh, a government to deal with these things. Absolutely, absolutely. So to herd immunity, this interests me greatly. And I think it interests me because of the way that decision making seemed to be going back in February, early March of, the, of this year. Um, so, for example, our chief scientific officer um, in the UK, Patrick Vallance, said this. This is early on, remember, this is February. Mm, March, right? Yeah. Our aim is to try and reduce the peak of the infections, broaden the peak, not suppress it completely, because the vast majority of people get a mild, a mild illness to build up some kind of herd immunity. So more people are immune to this disease and then we reduce the transmission. So that seems to be the way that the scientists and politicians were thinking mm, three, three, three months ago, something like that. And how they presented, uh, uh, they presented it to the public as well. They did indeed. That, yeah. they, I think later they're, they're less keen to acknowledge this, but <laughs> yeah. they were crystal clear about what they were yeah. thinking about. So just to sort of dig down into that uh, sort of uh, uh, scenario, in numerical terms, this would mean that about 47 million people would need to develop COVID to develop herd immunity, which is set at about 60 percent in this particular infection. With a mortality of rate of one to two percent, this would lead to about one million people dying and about nine million people developing serious, severe illness with a huge impact on their morbidity. Remember that even people who recover from severe COVID are often left with a lot of comorbidities. Now, the first thing that strikes me is that this strategy, which I'm glad to say 
we're not following now um, is much more like the large man on the bridge yes. case than the trolley switch case we talked about in the previous practical scenario. So in this case, as it was, the one the people who are being exposed to COVID are being used as a means for the greater good of the whole population. There is an intention that they become ill. Developing COVID is not something that is just foreseen. It's absolutely necessary for the strategy right. to work. Now, I suppose that politicians and scientists could say, although we intended the population to get COVID, we didn't intend them to die. We just intended them to get a mild illness and foresaw that maybe some of them would die. And this is starting to feel very much like the doctrine of double effect. Yeah. But that's important theoretically because it gets to the root of the theoretical problem with the doctrine. How do you define what is an intention and what is a side effect? And the critics of the doctrine of double effect, and there are many of these, say two things. Firstly, the difference between intending and foreseeing is so subjective and so hard to pin down that it really can't bear the moral weight that's required of it. And secondly, even if you can successfully um, conceptualise and understand the difference between intending and foreseeing, it's still possible, as Gabby hinted earlier, for foreseeing to be just as wrong as intending. Yeah, uh, I, this reminds me of something that um, Alison McIntyre uh, talks about, saying that many people wrongly assume that the doctrine of double effects permits acts that cause certain kinds of harm because those harms were not the agent's ultimate aim. Like you were saying, it's not the, the intention that they're sort of putting as the main thing they want to achieve. Uh, and they might be regretted re rather than welcomed. But in this case, like herd immunity, the harms that were produced uh, regretfully and only for the sake of producing a good end can be prohibited by double effect because they were brought about as part of the agent's means to realizing that good end. Absolutely. Um, if we remember Philippa Foote, who invented the original trolley problem and wrote a lot about both the doctrine of double effect and a related doctrine called the doctrine of doing and allowing, had two cases that illustrate what you've just said, Gabby, really clearly. Here are the two cases. Number one is poisoned oil for profit. You sell some cooking oil in order to get some extra cash. However, you know the oil to be poisoned. So unfortunately, a foreseen side effect of earning the cash is that several people will die. Case number two, poisoned oil, graves. You are a grave digger looking for some extra work and extra cash too. You sell some cooking oil, which you know to be poisoned, in order to create more orders for graves. Mm. Now, in the first of these two cases, the death of the oil user is foreseen and not intended. In the second, it's intended. The death of the oil user is the means to create profit for the grave digger. But both are wrong. Both are clearly wrong. So it seems here that the moral work is being done not by the doctrine of double effect, but by the notion of proportionality. The extra cash generated in both cases does not yeah. in any way at all justify any of these deaths. 
In the same way, you might want to say that allowing herd immunity to develop does not remotely justify the deaths of all the UK citizens affected by this policy. It fails the proportionality test. Precisely. Uh, and I think that's one of the best explanations why it doesn't matter um, how much data you have, or how much numbers you have to back up certain decisions. I think there are some really key ethical distinctions that need to be made, especially when it's about life and death. Um, so now for our last example, we're going into case three that has to do with a releasing lockdown. How do we manage uh, the possible extra deaths that we could have? So we're already in a process of uh, taking the lockdown down here in the UK. And there is an interesting issue in this release of the lockdown, again, related to the double effect. So we do foresee, but do not intend, that releasing lockdown will lead to the death of extra individuals. How do we handle that? Absolutely. And, and proportionality has to creep in again here. Yeah. Is the gain from lockdown release, so maybe increased economic activity, maybe better physical health in other ways than COVID, better mental health, better education, is that sufficient to justify the extra deaths which we foresee, for sure, from a second spike of coronavirus? Again, as we discussed in the first case, the mathematics of this are hugely complicated. But thinking about this case is helpful because it allows us to focus on another feature of the doctrine of double effect, which we've not really talked about so far. And this is the idea that's often forgotten when the DDE is discussed of no other alternative. The idea here is that whether a harm is intended or merely foreseen is irrelevant if there's another way of proceeding that means the harm is eliminated or reduced. Going back to the trolley case, the analogy would be that if it was possible to stop the trolley completely, then the double effect reasoning about switching tracks or displacing large men from bridges would become redundant. So it may be that the harms of not releasing lockdown can be ameliorated by, for example, the development of different economic models, a different social structure, different care structure, different educational methods, many different ways that social scientists uh, may devise and politicians implement to make the harms different than the harms that actually um, would come into place if no change was introduced. And if this was the case, there would be no need to switch the trolley at all. The harm would be reduced in another far less morally contentious way. But this takes us in a radical new direction about the shape of our society post-COVID. Such a question is vitally interesting, but it's not for today. Yeah, and, and on that note, I think our time is up for today, unfortunately. And um, I would like just to end mentioning um, how we should capitalize on this pandemic for ethical purposes. I think these uh, circumstances allow us not only to test and contrast our moral intuitions like we have seen today, but also magnify ethical dilemmas. And if we take it as an opportunity to learn from it, I think we can benefit, as you said, to shape or in this case, reshape our post-COVID societies.
That's all for today. I want to thank you, David, for being here. Thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed our conversation. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Until next time. The Idea Pod is produced by the Interdisciplinary Ethics Applied Center at the University of Leeds. Find out more at ahc.leeds.ac.uk slash ethics. Music composed and conducted by Josh Armitage. Thank you.